Good evening, everybody. I'm Mystery Matt, and you're listening to the Mystery Matt Spotlight Podcast. This evening, we are going to be going over the life and times of Jane Goodall. No. No. Diane Fossey. Diane Fossey. See, I'm getting everybody mixed up with everybody else. That's why Sarah's here, to keep me in line. Well, they are connected, right? Well, we'll have to explain that, because people at home might not know that. Well, yeah. Okay, so Jane Goodall was the first of the leaky ladies. Louis Leakey wanted to study primates, and it, and he always felt that it was better to have women study these animals over men because we are more observant and we catch, catch every little thing. And also, we have a more gentler approach to the situation. If you're going to habituate these animals, it's better to have a non-threatening presence. So Jane Goodall was the first one to do so. She was um, researching chimpanzees. And then next, Diane Fossey came in the picture, and she was wanting to do the mountain gorillas and so that's where her story begins sort of so we're doing which one diane fossey diane fossey yeah the gorilla yes her story is extremely complex and um has a lot of ups and downs and drama and everything so okay. it's, it's so a borderline true crime as well let's start from the top then uh do you have where she went to school well, where she grew up i do so where she was born <laughs> So she was born in San Francisco, California, in on January sixteenth, nineteen thirty-two. Um, let's skip that part. So her parents divorced when she was young. She had a pretty lonely childhood. She was an only child. Um, she wasn't close with her mother, and she blamed her stepfather for that, and didn't really trust people. She had trust issues with people. Quite frankly, I can resonate with that myself. And she loved animals, and she started her career as an occupational therapist. And work with tuberculosis patients at a children's hospital. And then, by herself, she managed to finance a trip to Africa to go on a safari, um, where she approached Louis Leakey and ended up spending some time with him when she unexpectedly broke her ankle. So she was stuck Whoops. at the Leakey camp. Yeah, she was kind of klutzy, actually. She had a lot of injuries. At the Leakey there. camp. Leakey camp. Yeah, with Louis Leakey and his wife. Um... She was a very bold, unafraid, very determined, very strong-willed woman. She was, but she was unpolished as a scientist because, technically speaking, she she wasn't a scientist. She didn't have any of that, but she would find her way there. Um, she was unstoppable. She was stubborn. She was absolutely a pioneer in her field. That was a given. Um, she was a heavy smoker, but she was also asthmatic. Yeah, but sometimes you like what you like, dear. Yes, true, right. Um, she had a vigilante attitude to protect her gorillas, and she did refer to them as her gorillas. I guess when you spend day and night in the jungle or in the rainforest with these animals, it wasn't a jungle, it was a rainforest, you do start looking at them as your animals. Like, how close does she get? Like, are we talking like 12 feet away at, at start? No, or closer. Closer at start. Um, she used to be able to lay her head in the lap of one of her gorillas. Yeah, but I mean, when she first when she got first there. started, it would take her. Oh man, it took her over a year and a half to two years before she could get within a certain distance because they are not used to human presence. That's right? what I'm saying. You're not just going to go there and lay on a gorilla's lap. No, you know? no. I mean, and, you're going to get. You can't torn do apart. that today. Yeah. No. Um. No, because the gorillas associated humans with with poachers and cattlemen because they would come up into the rainforest up in the Varungas and well basically encroach in their environment often killing and slaying the silverbacks for um like a sumu um which was like a poison that was believed to be 
used by people to kill their neighbors. Oh, good time. It, it, it's like a almost like a voodoo type thing, right? Um, and they would only do that by killing the silverbacks because it was the silverbacks who had that special power. I guess you would look at it. Um, in fact, every skull, every bone that Diane Fossey and her team collected would be analyzed, sketched, done up, and then shipped to the Smithsonian. And the Smithsonian right now, unfortunately, has probably the largest collection of of gorilla skeletons because of that, because of poachers. Wow. But we can get to that a little bit later. Um... She was very introverted. Um, she stayed single most of her life. She did have affairs, mostly with married men. Um, yeah, she didn't have the best taste in men. Um, she had some pretty iconic relationships with well, her photographer, her videographer, um, other like there was even rumored that her and Louis Leakey had a thing. But apparently, Louis Leakey had a crush on Diane. She was a very captivating woman. Um, she was very tall. Um, and like statuesque but he was married and she didn't have those same feelings for him she referred to him more like a almost like a father figure kind of yeah much of the same way jane goodall looks at him and even baruch who works with orangutans i can't pronounce her last name i'm not going to try she's she still works with orangutans and she's an amazing woman herself um but yeah so but diane went up to hang on i gotta look at my timeline so her her education comes a little bit later amongst all of this hoopla. But in uh, 1966, after being arranged by Louis Leakey to take over the um, gorilla research, she arrived in Africa in December of 1966, and she stayed for a couple days with Jane Goodall in Gombe, um, where Jane Goodall would study chimpanzees, kind of learn um, how Jane's approach to the animals were, because she had a little bit more experience at this time. And then she went to the Congo after that in January of 67, and she didn't really stay there very long because she was asked to leave as the Congo had a lot of um, military incidents, let's just say, a lot of strife. And so for her protection, she was asked to leave. She left, and then it wasn't until um, September of 67 where she went more to the Rwanda, Rwandan side of the mountain. Um, in the Parc des Volcans, and she set up the Karasoki Research Center. And what she did, she took Kerry from Mount Karasimbi and Soki from Mount Bisoki and merged it into one to make her camp. So her camp was actually up in the mountains, up and up off the volcano. And at first, they just had like your regular tents, like your canvas tents. But because of the rainy season and everything, those it was it made for horrible living conditions. So eventually, she had. Um, the corrugated metal, like the corrugated tin, come up, and that's yeah. where they constructed her main tent or her main building, her main home, her main cabin. And then eventually, the other cabins would follow for her researchers and stuff who would stay, as well as her trackers. Um, so it took her a few years to manage to infiltrate any of the groups of gorillas. But did she have to go to college or anything? Not, not yeah. She did have a college education, just not in this. It wasn't until in the 70s when she ended up going to Cambridge University in England to get her PhD because she didn't have to man she didn't have to go through all the rigmarole of going to get your bachelor's and your masters. She was able to go straight to her PhD 
because of her connections to Louis Leakey and already the research that she's done on the mountain gorillas. Interesting. Yeah. So she would watch and she she would watch these gorillas from a distance as far as she could. Her and her trackers would track them daily. A lot of the times for the first couple of years, they would just run from them. And when gorillas would run from anything, they they would be silent about it because they didn't want to give away their position that shows their line of intelligence. So instead, they would kind of release this odor, and it would be a pungent odor, which would tell the other gorillas in their groups that danger is coming. So they would run. And eventually, they would stop running, and they would just kind of observe the observers as well and realize, okay, these people are, we see them every day. They're they're not really harming us. You know, like, they're, they're starting to realize that Diane Fossey and her team, like her trackers and stuff, are not there to harm them. So they started kind of getting that curiosity as well, because gorillas are by nature extremely curious. Um, but and then as that happened, they, Diane could start observing them from twenty feet, so fifteen feet to fourteen feet, and each time she would get closer. And I think the closest before she actually made physical contact was probably around. I don't know, somewhere in the 70s, I think, like 1970s. Um, my timeline's a little mess because I didn't have a whole lot of time to prepare for this. Um, I think it was when that's when they were able to start looking at night nests and stuff. They realized that they would make a new nest every night. And from that, they were able to study how the nests were made, um, the the sex of the girl who made the nest, the age of the girl who made the nest, how many girls would stay in that nest. Usually it would be a maternal and a child, like an infant. And also by dung, they would be able to tell what their diet was and everything, and what kind of parasites that gorilla might have by, by checking out their fecal matter. Nothing like picking through poop. Well, it's part of the life of a scientist, especially a biologist, right? When you're studying living things, believe it or not, poop is one of the main things to look at because it can tell you the diet of an animal right i'm sure if i look through your poop i know what you're eating but i don't have to because i feed you so i know what you're eating well, there you go there you go especially sometimes when you let a fart out i know exactly huh? <sighs> so taco tuesday <laughs> taco tuesday oh i'm trying to think of anything um so in march of 1969 karasoki was notified that a baby gorilla was captured by poachers six weeks earlier and was in the conservator's office. So Diane descended the mountain, finds the gorilla, and confronted the conservator. She took the baby back to Karasoki and named him Coco. Not long after this, it happened again, and now she had another infant gorilla named Pucker that she was um, checking, like taking care of. And these gorillas, these baby gorillas were taken because they were meant for the Cologne Zoo in Germany, but they were next to death, so that's why they people called her in so she took care of these um both these two babies and once they were out of you know harm's way they were gonna live she would take them into the field with her and let and observe them as well because they were still technically wild animals they just didn't have their mother or their tech their technical female like female family group with them and so she would still be able to observe some of their behavior because you can't just take the wild out right but and she was really upset because she had them ready to be released back into the wild. She had figured out how to do it, and that was not meant to be. The government had already basically promised these two girls to the zoo, and off they went to the zoo. They did not survive very long in the zoo. 
unfortunately. Well, not many animals survive very long in the zoo. No, they died within a month of each other, actually, wow. when they were at the zoo. Uh, I'm trying to look for the pivotal stuff. So, as we talked about, poaching is a huge, huge problem in um, Africa. But let's go back a little bit. You're so, getting away from your mic. Sorry. So, when she started her research in 1967, there were only 274 mountain gorillas left spread between 29 groups. They were listed critically endangered until just recently. Now, right now, today, there's over a thousand. Oh, wow. So we have a lot of work to do, but they're no longer considered critically endangered, just simply endangered. To me, I still consider them critically endangered. There's only, what, like a thousand? Uh, I think uh, 1,800 and something. That's still critical as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. So, but at the time of her death in 1985, the number of mountain gorillas almost doubled to be just around 480. Despite the active, like, this is despite her active conservation efforts of cutting down snare traps, capturing poachers, and taking them down to the authorities. So, despite all of that, and a lot of the gorillas that she studied did end up getting, unfortunately, killed. And it was, it's so sad to read about. That's what happens. But she was she still managed to get those numbers up before she died. She almost she almost had them doubled by the time of her death. Yeah. I mean it took longer. It took almost twenty years since nineteen sixty seven. Wow. You know, but she did it. Um so sometimes she would use a fake form of witchcraft to make these poachers talk and tell them tell her and her team inside information. She would take them back to her camp, put on these scary masks, Halloween masks that she'd bring back from her trips to, from the United States, and start doing weird stuff, like making weird sounds to make them think that she's a witch. And because they were so afraid of witchcraft and witches, that they would often spill their guts. Like, oh, who was the head of the poaching? Who are they poaching for? All this kind of stuff. And then she would take them down to the authorities. But she also had some very unconventional very controversial and unethical ways of dealing with things when it came to poachers. Um, I understand her reasoning behind it. I don't necessarily agree with it, but I totally understand because of how much passion she had for what she did. What'd she do? Well, she kidn- Well, in one instance, she kidnapped one of the poachers' son after burning his hut or his hutu, I think it's called, down to the ground. Um, he left. He him and his family flee, leaving one of his kids behind. One of his many, 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 many kids behind. And so she kidnapped, I'm using quotation marks, and took the kid back up to her camp for about two weeks where she gave him candy and, you know, let him have fun and let him run around. When she was ordered to give him back to the family, the kid did not want to go. He wanted to stay with Diane. Oh, really? Yes, but unfortunately he had to go. But her love and her priority was always the gorillas. That scared the shit out of me. Um... She was actually one of the most um, forefront people in understanding gorilla vocalizations. She could she came to recognize their different vocals and even their different mannerisms. Like the chest beats of a gorilla were more of a bluff and delivered by silverbacks to warn off other gorilla like silverbacks that they were not tolerating them today. You know, like no, this is my territory. I'm just gonna you know beat my chest. I can't make this sound. I have too much boobs. Um. Didn't, don't gorilla have boobs? But they do, but they're not as... I don't know. I can't make the cupping sound. Can you make the cupping sound? I don't think so. Yeah, it's more of a cupping sound. 
<laughs> this okay. just became a very awkward podcast. Yeah. Well, everything's always awkward. Yeah. Oh, look at that. You can actually see the wave. Oh, neat. Anyway, so they were just basically to war, war off like other girls in the encroaching territories. And same with howls. They would make like certain howl or bellowing noises that would also mean the same thing. Then what Diane referred to as what a belch sound like meant contentment meant oh crap there was my spot um they they meant um contentment and um happy and a lot of the times they would make them while they were eating and hopefully this didn't screw up and i have the belch sounds here but i i don't know we may have to fix it so i'll play the belch sounds hang on So that was Diane doing these belch sounds that the girls would make. It'd be like, ah, like, almost like a us if we were to clear our throats. I do that all the time. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they also make that sound, too, when they would be playing. Like, the younger ones would make that ah sound when they were playing. And Diane would actually use those belch sounds to approach the gorillas to let them know that she's okay. That she's friendly. That she's not there to help hurt them or harm them. She would approach making those those sounds, those belches, and no, I'm not doing it again because I have a feeling you're going to ask me to do it. Yeah, do it. <clears throat> I'm nowhere near Diane doing that. She was also the first person to figure out that each gorilla has distinguishing marks that help her know which gorilla she's looking at or observing. Um, I know in whales and dolphins, it's their saddle patches and their eye patches that can be very distinguishable, and that's how you can tell, and as well as their dorsal fins, how you can tell which individual you're looking at. Yeah. Well, Diane learned that actually, much like our fingerprints, their nose prints are very distinguished, very different from each other's. And not two gorillas have the same nose print. You might have a variation of one from your maternal line, but it'll still be unique to that particular gorilla. So she could identify these gorillas by just their nose prints. So they would sketch out the nose prints of each gorilla, take the pictures of the gorillas, and able to identify them. Um as individuals um one of the reasons why men don't like it when women um basically research animals is because we tend to anthropomorphize them and instead of giving them numbers like in the scientific community they want you to identify an animal by a specific number like a14 or or c39 where we tend to name them directly and you've seen me do it on arc where i name everything i very rarely not name something on arc i have to have a name for it yeah whereas if i'm like trying to breed some special ones and i know i'm getting rid of a middle generation i name it like a7 or b12 or yeah. you know, well she named all her the gorillas. different vitamins she had uncle bert she had Flossie. she had digit she had well we already talked about pucker and coco um she had effie um she had brahms she had bravado like she named Almost every gorilla, she had a name for all of them. So she had one named Braun. No, I think it was Brahms. Oh, Brahms. So I don't need my phone anymore. No. Unfortunately, my timeline is a little off, but we'll get to the basis of it. One of her breaking points came in 1977, when her favorite gorilla, Digit, who was whose face was actually used i believe on rwandan tourist posters because he had developed a special almost like a one-on-one relationship with diane as well as some of her um researchers like ian redmond who was her research assistant he was prominently featured uh she often talked about him at symposiums and anytime she would go on to like 
she was on Johnny Carson. She would talk about Digit. And she was often seen photographed with him. And usually his head would be resting on her lap or her head would be rested on his lap. And it was a very connected relationship. Um, he The reason his name is Digit is because he was missing one of the tips of his fingers. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So, unfortunately, on December 31st, 1977, Digit took five mortal spear wounds into his body while holding off six poachers and their dogs to protect his group. Re- um, research assistant Ian Redmond finds Digit's body headless on January 1st, 1978. Well, you could have given the folks at home a little bit of warning on the headless thing. Un- well, this isn't going to be your your daisy jump through the wildflowers type podcast yeah, well, we'll have to put a warning at the beginning i guess you gotta put a warning at the beginning i told you it was gonna be like a true crime thing no you gotta well it gets worse from there and it gets digit, worse from there so it does it gets it... worse from there so digit only also had two offsprings or he had only offspring his only offspring sorry was born to simba and his son's name was um maywellu Mawulu? m-w-e-l-u i'm sorry i'm not very good at pronouncing Oh, just a few months later, like six months, seven months later, poachers would kill and take the head off of Uncle Bert, shoot and kill Macho, which was a female, just in case you didn't know, and Boone Kowali, who would die from his wounds a couple months later. Digit's only offspring would be killed during an interaction by Nunky's group. Nunky was another gorilla, and his group, a lot of the times the groups will come together, fight each other to take off, take females from their group to add to their group because they're a smaller group and they're trying to enlarge. So, yeah. The monkey mingle. Hmm? The monkey mingle. The monkey mingle. mingle. Oh, see, I had the freaking timeline written out better. Okay, well, now I'm getting into the good shit because now we're looking at the controversial part of the timeline that relays more to Diane and less to the gorillas. Is, Hmm? is, Is any of this speculation or... A lot of it was written from her book. So her book, Gorillas in the Mist, which inspired the movie of the same title, starring Sigourney Weaver, who did a great job. Yeah, Sigourney Weaver. Um, The movie was in production. Well, it was going to be a movie right before Diane was killed. So they managed to put that into the movie. But she she wrote this book called Gorillas in the Mist, which is more of a, almost like a scientific journal kind of thing but she talks very openly about all of her problems that she's had um even her love life everything up to like all the issues she's had with the rwandan government a lot of it stemming from her own actions obviously because they're probably not happy that she kidnapped a poor child and yeah probably not. you know and would often come down and fight them on on issues regarding the gorilla conservation and the whole witch thing yeah so obviously she she did some things to piss a lot of people off Throughout those years, including some of her own staff members, like a lot of her staff members that I saw being interviewed. Um, I have a documentary. It's a three-part National Geographic documentary called Secrets in the Mist, which is amazing. It has a lot of her former um, research assistants and research students talking about her and her method. A lot of them don't like like the woman. They, they did not like her. And it, she speaks openly about her hatred for some of them as well in her book. And you can also find a lot of her story in Farley Mowat's book, Woman in the Mist, um, which was very accurate. Um, he often used journal entries from Diane's journals, uh, letters that she sent to friends. Well, it, these titles are awfully misty. They are very misty. 
Oh my gosh, Kelly would have a heyday right That's now. That's what I'm saying. Kelly would have a heyday. So even James Stewart, the actor James Stewart, his daughter was one of Diane Fossey's research um, students named Kelly. She started off having a really good relationship with Diane, but eventually that would peter out as Diane had issues with other females over her male students where she would have relationships, not relationships like sexual, but think there was a jealousy there when she'd start seeing two of her students get closer and she didn't have that so she would kind of get irked yeah she would get kind of pissed off and start saying oh you're not doing your job you're not doing your job she did always have a good relationship with ian redmond and i've met ian i have a lot of respect for her. he's amazing i've spoken to him briefly in um messages and stuff so oh have you now yes he's a nice nice young man from a nice well Older man, I guess, now from England. We talk to everybody, don't yeah, we? Yeah, we do. We try well, to. we try to. So. Yay, the paper edition. Yeah. So, Ian and Atiri, is, he's a tracker, um, prevents poachers from murdering a group of gorillas on April 3rd, 1977. April 4th, 1977, Diane and the entire camp staff mounted a counter raid and found no poachers. Five park guards in April 15th. Marched in poacher. I'm not even going to try to pronounce this name. If you want to take a run at it, you can. And Fossey gave him a nettle lashing. A nettle lashing is not fun. You can walk through um, fields of nettles and it will feel like you're being stung by like a million bees. Even if you're wearing layer multiple layers of clothing, these nettles can get into your skin and they'll leave blisters and bruises and scrapes and stuff. It's not fun. Interesting. Yeah, I I I don't like rose bushes, so I probably would not like nettles. Nettles, no. Same deal. Yeah. So what? A lashing. They're part. pricks. So then, what's with the lashing part then? Well, because it's unpleasant, right? No human can really take it. So she would hit them with with um bushels of nettles and try to get information out of them. Um, but the park guards, five of them, brought this poacher to Diane to do it. So, another poachers were harassing the gorillas of Group 5. Fossey had enough. She and Basili, who is another camp worker, drove to the Twelve village of Mukingo. And Neme and Fossey went to the guy whose name I couldn't pronounce before. I don't even want to try to. We'll just call him Money. Mooney. M-U-N-Y. We'll just call him that for now. And he had several um, houses and huts. And he fled. And she grabbed one of his kids and took his money and food and supplies and then set fire to his house. And that was the kid that he she kidnapped. And then rumors at the end of the month that she was going to be expelled from Rwanda because of her actions. Um, kind of sounds like they, she should be. Yeah, probably should have been. I know the American government wasn't too happy with her actions either. She wrote some nasty letters to the conservator Alan Montfort, the chief Belgian advisor to the ORP, ORTPN, and the tarp- who's the Department of Tourism and National Park, and they were inflammatory. They strike back by arresting the BBC film crew. Oh. Yeah. David Attenborough, just so you know. And then there was a uh, U.S. ambassador to Rwanda sent a letter to Diane that the U.S. State Department received complaints about her illegal actions in Rwanda. 
Um, two of Digit's killers were caught on January 28, 1978. So Fosse left Karasoki and went to Kigali to put pressure on the Rwandan authorities to ensure a fitting punishment. She wanted them to be in prison for their life, but they got three to five years. Aww. Yeah. They found Macho's body. Several unseen men circled Karasoki, keeping cover in the woods, screaming obscenities. And Diane fired a pistol into the forest. Just randomly. Just pow pow, pew pew, pew pew. Randomly. This goes on for a while. Basically the back and forth between her and the government and, and poachers and workers and stuff like that. A lot of it gets a little hairy, need I say. So the U.S. ambassador, Frank Kreigler, told Fosse that um, Dismas wanted to discuss the Fosse problem. So now she had a thing. She was the Fosse problem. Said that Fosse is more of a liability than an asset to the to the um, preservation of the uh, area. Yeah. So in July of 1979, Fosse's camp is invaded by a party from Chicago who demanded that she take them to see gorillas. Fosse responded by pretending to have a fit of dementia and firing a gun over their heads. They later filed a complaint of attempted murder against Diane Fosse. After that. They actually wanted her to leave the camp and leave Rwanda for a while, maybe thinking that some time away would clear her head, which is when she took off to the States, kind of forced out. She was forced to go to the States for a couple of years where she wrote Gorillas in the Mist and started putting like her dissertation together and, and also as well um, teaching some classes at a local university. I think it was Cornell. Don't quote me on that. I can't remember. But she would she would do it while some of her former students that she didn't necessarily get along with would look after the camp and the gorillas. So you can imagine how much this irked her. Yeah. Um, knowing how nutty she was getting. Um, in night this might be um pivotal, but in January sixteenth, nineteen eighty one, while she was away, um, Diane's cabin was broken into and someone had used tin snips to cut and crawl a hole through the corrugated tin wall directly below a corner of windows in Diane's bedroom. Two of the intruders rummaged through the house, stole batteries, movie cameras, three typewriters, binoculars, a desk chair, towels, pillows, sleeping bags, camera tripods, and they were never caught. And this was before she went back to the States? This was while she was in the States. This is while she was in the States. Yes. They broke into her cabin. Yes. I, the reason I put this in here is because it kind of, in my opinion, ties into things down the line. Well, where were the students when this all happened that were supposed to be watching that camp? I believe it was in the middle of the night, so they were probably sleeping. But I, I and her cabin was a little further away from the students' cabins, so I don't know why nobody would have heard it if, unless they were really far away. Because, you know, tin sounds like when you're trying to, it's like, it just bangs. Oh, yeah. It's not fun. So I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. At the, so when she did come back to the camp, um, she was in very poor health. Um, she could, her arthritis was really bad. Her asthma and her coughing was horrendous. Rwanda made it very difficult for her to stay. So every few months, she would have to walk down the hill, which would originally average take her two hours to get down and or get back up. It would now take her a lot longer than that because of her health and her decline. Um, so she would have to go all the way down the hill, spend a week down there, get her visa situated, and then she'd have to go back up the hill only to do it again in a couple months. So this, this became a thing. She'd have to go up, down, up, down every few months. It was, had to be hell on her. 
because, I mean, her health was shit. She couldn't do it. Half the time, she couldn't even make it out to see the gorillas anymore. She would just get the notes and stuff from her students and type them up into paper. I don't know how much longer she would have had up on that mountain, to be honest with you. Yeah. But she held on because she is stubborn, right? So, David Watts, one of her former students who was there to help look after the par- um her camp, resigned. And we had a... Staying with her at the time was Joseph Manienza, a Rwandan etymologist, Wayne McGuire from Oklahoma University, um, and a few other smaller students that aren't mentioned that much. She said that Wayne was type of person, he was a really good guy, really nice boy, but he kept getting lost in the forest, which would drive her nuts. It would it would just drive her crazy. You know, she didn't have time to have search parties go out looking for him and he would get lost. But it, it is what it is, right? Anyways, so, whoops, I just knocked that. So, she would have to go down on December 3rd, 1985, back down to Regali to renew her visa again. This time, the the gen, uh, the secretary general in charge of immigration would meet with her and solve her visa issues. She could now stay for two years and said the next one would be good for 10 years as she returned to the camp on December 7th, 1985. On December 22nd, 1985, was her last journal entry, which she wrote, When you realize the value of all life, you dwell less on what is past and concentrate more on the preservation of the future. At the time, Christmas came. She decided to have a small Christmas gathering with Wayne and Joseph because Joseph was leaving. And they would have a, like a gathering. She would make dinner. She would give. They would exchange presents because she would always bring presents back for her campers and her trackers and stuff every year. And so she had this, had dinner. They had a good time. And then on December 27th, one of her trackers headed over to Diane's cabin where he found her front door partially opened. At this point, Wayne McGuire's woken up. He hastily thrust his feet into mismatching boots, and he found her home in complete ruin. Lamps smashed on the floor, uh, shards of glass, furniture overturned, the Christmas tree and presents were untouched. Diane's bedroom was also ransacked. Drawers, cupboards were all opened and emptied, books and clothing all over the floor. A table was overturned. The mattress was slipped off its frame. And Diane was found on the floor on her back, sprawled out, an automatic weapon with the clip out by her side. Her head had been split diagonally from her forehead, across her nose, and down her one cheek to the corner of her mouth. Wayne checked her pulse. There was nothing. So, she was put to um, rest on December 31st, 1985, and she was buried alongside Digit, Uncle Bert, and Macho, and her other beloved gorillas up on at the Karasoki Research Center, which she herself established. Now, this is where things get a little hairy, and I'm not sure how much we want to dive into it, because this has reached, possibly, and it can, it, it might, I don't know. We'll just do it, and if you don't want it, then well, you can edit it. You got... I have half an hour left. No, you got, like, 20 minutes. Whatever. Keep it, keep it clean. Uh, I will try. So, Emmanuel mm-hmm. Relicawana, who was one of Diane's um, trackers, who's had a... Strange history with Diane. She'd fire him. She'd rehire him. But she really did like him. And she, and he was a really good tracker. She was the best. He was the best one that he that she had. He was in prison for her murder. And was put into solitary confinement. And him and Wayne McGuire were charged 
with Diane's murder. So, just a few weeks after Relicawana's imprisonment, he was found dead. It was um, in, alleged that he hung himself, and McGuire himself was never arrested. He he was um, hastily shipped out to back to the states, but he was charged. December of like almost a year later, he was charged in absentia by the Rwandan tribunal. If he ever returns to Rwanda, he will be sentenced to death. Now, this is where things get a little hairy. Diane was pretty paranoid about things. And it, and it stands, stands the reason that she had very good reason to be paranoid about things. Especially, you know, her cabin was broken into four years prior to her death. Yeah, when she was away. And the crime scene itself was very similar to that incident. When the authorities showed up, so there was a nine millimeter automatic gun was by her side with the clip out, but the ammunition was of the wrong caliber. Um, beside her desk in the southeast corner, a three foot by three foot hole was cut through the corrugated metal siding and grass matting. Grass matting, which is what she had covered in the walls on the inside, and the entry and exit was the only place not obstructed by furniture. Um, and we also know that persons who did. Obviously left by the front door because the tracker found the door partially opened, right? Yeah. Or at least allegedly. Alle- allegedly, yeah. Um, nothing appeared, like no jewelry or cameras or money or other valuable equipment were taken. A panga, which is um, a big, like, knife, was found next to her body and was her own. It was taken from a poacher that she had taken from a while, but it was she had it hung up on her wall in the other room kind of thing, like as a trophy. Okay. You know, vic- like she was a victim, basically. She was paranoid. Is that the uh, expected murder weapon? That is, that was, yeah, pretty much a panga doing the damage to her face and stuff. It was very personal. So all of her papers and her research was not taken. So that was not a motive in any way. So the hole that was cut in the corrugated metal would have made a lot of noise. And whenever it was windy people in the campus it would make noise so there's no way she could have slept through that so i'm not sure if she heard it wasn't sure what was going on got up found her gun went to get the ammunition and it was the wrong ammunition by the time she got back to take care of like herself it was too late that's speculation obviously on my part right because we don't know but how could you like i said how could you sleep through that well didn't you say the corrugated thing happened the night yes but it was repaired other? Yeah. It had been repaired since, because even in the photos before, before that first break-in, it was all the same color, but after the break-in, it was a different color. Yeah. Yeah. So did they break in through the same spot? It looks like. Because it's sounding to me like it might be two different investigations getting mixed up. It sounds like to me that it was premeditation, that the first one they just stole things because they couldn't get what they wanted done. So there was a huge chunk also taken out of her nightstand. Like a, of the corner, probably by the panga. Um, the investigation was handed very poorly because instead of like picking up evidence the way you would in like North American crime scenes, very carefully you would preserve the scene. The panga itself, which would be the murder weapon, was handled by so many people. It wasn't even bagged. It was no. It was picked up with no gloves by the handle. It was, and eventually it was placed in two plastic bags to preserve the evidence, but. You can't, but at that point, because it's already been handled. So what's the fucking point of putting it in a friggin' bag? Yeah. You might as well just say, oh, screw this, right? There was muddy footprints. There was two sets of footprints, bare feet, 
in the mud outside of the um leading up to the cabin. In the footprints, the trail pointed towards the victim's cabin. They began from the trail of the house or to the basin from Visoki or Bisoki, the mountain, and go right past the researcher Wayne McGuire's cabin and onto the victims. So the person or persons responsible were barefoot, and only locals were comfortable going barefoot. If you remember when I said that Wayne put his boots on when he found out there was something going on, he didn't just run to the cabin barefoot. He actually stopped to put boots on because he's not local. And didn't you say, like, one of each? Like, didn't he, he, put he, on he didn't like, put on the right shoes. He just grabbed the first two things he saw, and they weren't even the right. Like, they were mismatched. So only locals were really comfortable going bear staff. Um, camp staff took care to preserve the prints, and they even used um, a big pen for scale, and they wanted to take pictures. A big pen, for instance, is five and a half inches in length. I measured it, and that's without the cap. And the footprints was longer and relatively wide. They were not particularly large, but they were longer than a five and a half inch big pen without its cap and, and wide foot. I got your big pen right here. I bet you do. So that says a lot. The The camp staff wanted these footprints preserved and the, everybody just kind of like, whatever. They never even took really good photographs of it. Just the camp staff did. So the, the police or the authorities did not take pictures of these footprints, which in here now, North America... That would have been one of the first things we would have taken pictures of, right? Yeah, in a normal investigation that we're used to anyway. Yeah. Um, and like we already discussed, Wayne McGuire put on his boots so fast when he was informed of the victim that he put on the two different ones. So he was never outside without his boots. And clearly, if he had done this, his boots that he would have taken off after killing her would have been together. So by the fact that he had to run around looking for different shoes or any kind of shoes to put on his feet doesn't say that he had shit together. Yeah, it doesn't sound like it. No, so I don't, I honestly believe that Wayne had nothing to do with this. There's no way. And from all accounts, a lot of people feel the same way as I do. The Batwa, or the Twa, which is a a poaching tribe, they have relatively wide feet and are mainly barefoot. They're poor, lowercase, lower education, mostly in the forest, in the Virungas, and the only ones that would be smaller would be Pygmies. Yes, I said it. Not trying to be racist here. I'm just giving you the facts of different tribes. I had to research different tribes and different family groups in Africa when I was doing this originally. I just wish my notes were more put together for this podcast. <laughs> I'm sorry, you have a lot of editing. Um, the authorities did not care about the two sets of footprints. I think that's a huge piece of evidence, though. What do you think? I don't have anybody else to bounce this off of, so give me something. The, the footprints, you mean? Yeah. Well, yeah. If If it was just like, you know... Out and around the shed and then back again is probably like, no, someone went to go take a leak or something. But but it came up from the bottom of the mountain yeah. up to the past Wayne's cabin. Yeah, how did Wayne not know? Where was Wayne? Well, see, that's what I was trying to figure out, and I'm still waiting on Ian to get back to me on the map. Um, I sent Ian Redmond the picture of the map, and I said, where exactly was Wayne's cabin? Because these footprints apparently go past his cabin to Diane's. And he says, I'll have to get back to you. <laughs> that was like three years ago. <laughs> oh, wow. So he never got back to you. He never got back to me. He's very busy, though. He travels everywhere. So, and then there was the panga. So the panga is 16 to 18 inches long, and that's just a blade. It's like a machete. It's long, sharp knife. It's or it's like a panga or a tapanga. It is a very, very used in East and South Africa. The name may be a a Healy. Uh, The panga blade broadens on the backside and has the length of 16 to 18 inches. 
its upper incline portion of the blade may be sharpened, so it kind of comes to a tip. Just to see if you like it. Just to see if you like it. See that? See that? Oh, okay. That doesn't help people on a podcast see my drawing no, of a panga. Like, Here, look at a rough sketch of a panga. Yeah, this tool has been used as a weapon during the Marmar uprising and in the Rwandan genocide. In South Africa, particularly in the 1980s and early 1990s, when the former province of Natal was racked by conflict between African National Congress and the Zulu Nationalists, uh, Inkafa, Inkafa Freedom Party, I hate trying to pronounce these names. So it also, they say that the original three by three foot hole cut into the victim's home was done by a machete or a panga, but the victim also had it, like Diane had it on her wall and that one was missing. So I don't, maybe she grabbed her own and tried to use that when she couldn't find her ammunition. From what I know, there was blood on this panga. But if she was in a puddle pooling of her own blood. It see, could... it's hard for me to see how big this hut would be. It's a fair size. It's a fair size hut. So I could have gone over that, but I didn't think you'd want to hear that. Yeah, well, that's that's okay. Yeah. Do you want to hear about blood or no? Oh, I don't know. No, that's about five pages worth of information right there. Yeah, you got about ten minutes. Let's go to suspects. So anyways, as we know, she's obviously murdered. So we'll go with their suspect. Suspect number one was Emmanuel Relicawana. He was a tracker for Diane from 1972 to 1985. He was valued as one of her best trackers, also part of her anti-poaching group. He would seek out guerrilla groups, sometimes with Diane or Ian, or often on his own, and report daily movements and keep sharp eyes peeled for signs of poachers and collect gorilla dung for research. Did he want to, though? <clears throat> I don't know. Sometimes he was afraid of Diane, but there was respect. The two butted heads, and he'd leave. Both would cool down, and he would come back. On July 13, 1983, um, Relicawana came across a very dangerous Varungan poacher named Sabahutu, who speared Relicawana in the belly, slashed his thigh, and Relicawana grabbed the spear and stabbed the poacher in the arm. He quit or was fired before August of 1985. All trackers who worked for Diane were questioned and eventually let go, except for Relicawana. His daughter said that when the authorities came to take her father away, they also took clothes that contained sap from a banana tree and said it was blood. She never saw her father again. David Watts, who used to work with Diane at at Karasoki, said that Relicawana quit and left on his own, but the story was made up that Fossey fired him and he was very angry. And he spoke, Relicawana spoke French, Rwandan, and Kisali, but not English, and he'd never met Wayne McGuire. That's key, right? Never met him. Okay. Couldn't couldn't even talk to him if he wanted to. Okay. Uh, Relicawana allegedly hung himself in prison, but nobody believes that. Former prison guard, who will remain anonymous, said that Relicawana did not kill himself, that he saw the government officials and others go back to Relicawana's cell and come back with his body wrapped up and told the guard that he had passed away. And his daughter said they never got her father's body back to bury him. The authorities said his death was by self-hanging and it proved his guilt. He was nowhere near Karasoki the night of the murder. Allegedly. We'll just throw that in there. Allegedly. He was nowhere near Karasoki. And although Diane was known to mistreat people, she would fire people, but always bring them back. And he was still working for the Mountain Project Gorilla, or Mountain Gorilla Project, and was familiar with Karasoki and her cabin. So although he wasn't working right with her, he was still working on the project from a different perspective. Yeah. So now we move to Wayne McGuire, who was apparently Relicawana's partner in crime. <coughs> <clears throat> so, Wayne Richard McGuire was a research assistant from August 1985 to 1986. He was a doctoral candidate at the University of Oklahoma, working on his thesis in the parental behavior of male gorillas. 
He was quiet, and he considered Diane a friend and a mentor. He would often report back to her what the gorillas were doing when she wasn't able to go see them herself. According to Fossey, he was a very nice, non-threatening man who gets lost a lot, and she worried about him on the mountain. She also confided in him about the poaching and smuggling ring, and that she was likely to be killed. Told him if he ever heard shots fired, not to worry about her, but get down that trail and off the mountain as fast as he can. In September 85, Diane was very last minute was a very last-minute invite to the park's 60th anniversary festivities. She told McGuire not to go with her or sit with her because it would look bad for him. She watched out for him. And McGuire and Joseph, the gentleman I told you about, the uh, Blondin etymologist, spent Christmas Day with her, and they shared a wonderful dinner, and she gave them both really nice Christmas gifts, and she was very happy. In February 1986, just after, a couple months after her death, he was examining a gorilla skeleton that he found on a picnic table outside Diane's cabin, which the U.S. Embassy had deemed off-limits, and he noticed someone inside. He could see shadows moving. He looked in the window and made the mistake and went inside. A guard showed up, held him at gunpoint, excused him of piling, ex- accused him sorry, of piling books and papers into a box, and there was nothing inside to take. The guard wanted to shoot McGuire. He was questioned by the Rwandan authorities, and no matter what he said, the prosecutor didn't believe him and was pressuring him to sign a paper while someone kept pushing him in the shoulder to do so. He was in fear of his life, and he signed it, not understanding what it was. The U.S. US Embassy embassy, found out that charges were about to be laid on McGuire, so they rushed him out of the country for his own safety and security. There was no forensic evidence ever connecting McGuire to the murder. There was no motive. Authorities said McGuire and Emmanuel Relicawana came up with the murder plot. But, as I had said already, McGuire never met Relicawana and also did not speak French, Rwandan, or Kiswili, and Relicawana could not speak English, so there would be no way for them to come up with the plot. It was just, it was, it's just a stupid cop-out, in my opinion. So he was, anyways, McGuire was tried in absentia, and there was no forensic evidence, no defense. The trial lasted 30 to 40 minutes, was found guilty, and sentenced to death if he ever steps on African soil. No hair samples were taken from McGuire, no foot impressions or fingerprints. He was one of the first to arrive at the crime scene. He checked her pulse and covered her body. There was no motive. One of the authorities said McGuire had had was to steal all of her papers and manuscript, all her precious documents, so that his research could be done. Except that his was very specific target that he was looking at the parental behaviors of male gorillas. Yeah. Not something Diane was necessarily studying herself. So her research was not going to help him. Yeah. So he had nothing to gain from that. He had nothing to gain from her death. He had everything to lose, and which he did. And he wore his boots always. So there was nothing. They did find hair in Diane's hands when she died. Okay. And it was tested, or so they say, but never came back to anybody. It came back inconclusive. And then we have... Yes, the Rwandan government, in my opinion, not mystery mass, but in my opinion, may or may not have something to do with this. It's just two coincidences, but we won't go there. I've got no opinion at all. All right. And po- and number four, I have poachers. So there's a th- hundreds of poachers that could possibly have done this, but they would all have the motive to do so. And Diane constantly fought with them. She and her team cut up their traps, ruining their, their well, snares. The, even the father of the kid who was kidnapped. Yeah, I think he was dead by that time. Allegedly dead, but then came back from the dead. Um, Yeah, it's very, very hard to understand. All right, so 
And she would also destroy their camps. She would steal from them and she would invade their camps and make them run. Like I said, she not only stole their, this guy's kid, she stole money, any money he had and any supplies and stuff. I mean, that had to surely piss him off. Probably yeah. more so than the kid because he had like 10 others. And I'm not even saying it's this particular poacher who who is guilty of it. I'm just saying poachers in general because like I said, there were so many of them. Um, She had caught and arrested many of them. She would terrorize them by wearing Halloween masks. She tortured them. By hitting them with the nettles, her active conservation would get in their way of making money. And trust me, there was money in selling gorilla hands and heads and their blood and their bile and stuff like that. Because people wanted it, especially rich people. Nothing was better than having an ashtray of a gorilla hand. You know, it's Ew. it's disgusting. It's sick. And oh, talking about poaching on a different podcast might be a better idea. But they've killed so many they also killed many of the gorillas from her specific groups that she studied, and often brutally. Um, she was killed in a very similar fashion as the poachers used on gorillas by using the pangas and using it to disfigure her, not beheading her, which I'm actually surprised. I would assume that a poacher may have beheaded her just for symbolism. Maybe they didn't have time. I don't know. And, of course, they are more likely to run around barefoot, where nobody in Diane's camp did that. Um, I also put the whole kidnap the poacher's young son. Um, she will work and they will work and do anything for money. Poachers would use poison to kill a human. I had mentioned that already. Most practice sumu, which is a form of black magic. Will work and do anything for money. That kind of connects back to my theory that government involvement, because the government themselves are not going to commit this murder directly, right? They're going to hire somebody to do it and do better than poachers who would do anything for money. Right? Wow. Any thoughts? No, that's a lot to Unpack? absorb. Yeah, and I'm not. That was not even half of the shit I had written down. Yeah, and I'm sorry if it was a little blotched, like blotchy, but we decided Matt didn't have anybody lined up to do a podcast, and I had to kind of pull this out of my ass. Yeah, we kind of last minute. It yeah, time. and I had I have a lot of notes and everything, but I had not had time to put them in order. Yeah, so I hope you guys enjoyed our brief look. At Diane Fossey, like Sarah said, there's lots more in there. But uh, maybe we'll visit again. If it gets enough attention, we might go into more detail. Do a full, you know, two, three-parter on it. If anybody's interested in the actual murder case and stuff like that. Um, I do. I did, remember? I contacted the FBI and they sent me documents. Neato. They weren't very useful documents, but I did go that far. scribbly parts. No, not not really anything redacted, just uh, a letter about her gun permit and something else. I have it in my bag wherever I can find the rest of the material for this case. Good times. Yeah, I did print them out, but there, there wasn't anything really useful. There was nothing um, necessarily about her murder. I What I had originally asked for was autopsy report. Not pictures, just autopsy report. And no, I don't have that. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you enjoyed the mystery, Matt, spotlight this evening, tell a friend and, you know. Telephone. Telephone and <laughs> Tallahassee and that's all the tells yeah. I got for now. Yeah. All tell right. a story. Tell a story. Yeah. Let somebody know. We can build an audience together. All right. You guys take her easy and we'll see you on the next one.